Well, we continue on our series in 1 Peter, and tonight we're looking at chapter 4. Chapter 4 has quite a lot in it. There's probably a dozen sermons on different topics in this chapter, but I just want to dive in and look at a few, and uh, hopefully, um, yeah, it'll give you a bit more of an insight into uh, what Peter's talking about there. Before we do, let me pray, and then we'll move on. Our gracious Lord, we do thank you for your word, the gift of your word. We thank you that you speak to us through your word, that you reveal yourself and your purposes in this world through your word. Our Father, we pray that through your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us, you would challenge us, that you teach us, and help us to understand more of your will and purposes for our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that messing up, is it? We had this problem this morning with this silly thing um, crackling away through the sermon and then the clicker decided to act up. So <laughs> I will continue. Um, firstly, I'd like to say that I guess there are a number of people here who are blessed by being raised in Christian homes. And at a certain stage in your life, you moved into a, a relationship with Jesus from a, that very solid firm background. However, quite a few of us, don't worry Stu, I'll just do this. Uh, a lot of us came from background, but it's not essentially actually Christian at all. Ah, okay, options. <laughs> Thanks mate. But at some point we came to a point in our lives where we made that decision to follow Jesus. And that decision often marked a significant change in the way we lived our lives. It marked a change in how we viewed the world. I gave my life to Jesus when I was about 15 years old. And when I did, I found that my life was somehow different. It changed. And I wanted to know more about Jesus and his way of doing life. My attitudes towards people changed and I became more compassionate and caring. And my worldview changed and I wanted to serve God and his church. When Peter wrote to the early church, Christian believers were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And Peter wrote about AD 60. And this, this chapter is basically on working under the heading, this chapter 4, is living for Jesus, living for Jesus. And that's why I kind of want to look at that tonight, as what does that mean in this context. But this was a persecuted church. Jesus wrote to people, who were being persecuted for their faith. And they were suffering because of that professed faith in Jesus. So Peter wrote to encourage these guys who were doing it tough. And he wrote to help address some of the uh, help them address some of the issues that they were facing living in a pagan community, in a pagan society. Because in the face of criticism, Verbal and physical abuse, oppression, rejection, ostracism. The great temptation for many of them was to throw on the towel, to chuck it all in. It was just getting too hard, too tough to continue to be a Christian believer in the face of all this. And so they were tempted to go back to their previous way of living. And you kind of say, well, how's that relevant to us? How does that connect to our situation? We're not really persecuted. We live in a safe, comfortable community, country. 
But I think the temptation for people in our world today is the temptation to return to a previous lifestyle where we don't bother with church, where we don't engage with other Christian believers. I'm sure we can think of a lot of other different things to do on a Sunday rather than making time to come to church, either in the morning or in the evening. So there is a temptation, and I believe it's a very real temptation, and I think Peter speaks to that as well. So when we come to 1 Peter 4, Peter encourages his readers to remember, firstly, the sufferings of Christ and how Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross because faith in Christ, that's the key thing. It ushers in a whole new way of living. Peter writes, as a result, they do not live the rest of their lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, Peter's not saying that the Christian believer, once you put your faith in Christ, that you're now perfect. I'm not saying that at all, but that sin is no longer a problem. Indeed, he urges them, he acknowledges that they still sin, but he urges them to forsake sin. But there's a decisive difference. They have died to sin and have gained the freedom to live according to the will of God. And so their lives are different. And so Peter contrasts their new freedom in Jesus to how they used to live as pagans. He says they used to live in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. I haven't got any pictures tonight. I sort of got to that verse and I thought, no, that's going to be a challenge, so we'll just do the text and leave it at that. <laughs> These guys that Peter's writing to have been there. That was their former lifestyle. They'd done that. And those things produced no lasting benefit for them. It didn't satisfy the desires of their hearts. The fleeting pleasures that these activities gave, it it lasted for a very short time. It gave no, gave no lasting, meaningful sense of peace or joy in their lives. And so Peter says they actually wasted their time. They wasted their time living this way. But their lives have now changed. And they should have no further interest in behaviour that is immoral and offensive to God. Yet having made this decision... They are now subject to the criticism and abuse of their former acquaintances who continue in reckless and wild living. It's not so different today when we encounter people who do not understand our attitudes to things like excessive drinking or taking drugs, using coarse language, sexual promiscuity, pornography, just to name a few of the things that are prevalent in our society today. When we take a stand against those things, people do not understand. They don't get it. And so the first, the, their immediate reaction is to criticise, to make fun of us. And it was more severe in Peter's time with these people he's writing to. So Peter encourages his readers to resolve to live the rest of their years not for these worldly passions but instead for the will of God. Even though they found that the world was so very much against them, Peter explains this as a, as a visible expression of the end times. He writes, the end of things is near. 
Judgment, he says, is coming. The day of the Lord. The day when Jesus will return to judge the earth. It's coming. It's getting close. So be ready. We don't know when that day will come. It could come tonight. We don't know. Christians have been waiting for the day of Jesus' return from when Peter wrote through to the present. It will happen. Jesus promised that he would return. We just don't know when. But the challenge is, are we ready? Peter says they must determine to be sober-minded for the sake of their prayers and to continue loving one another with heartfelt service and hospitality. Two very important things, serving and hospitality. We haven't got time to dive into those things, but they're so important in the fellowship of believers. Peter then um, later on in the chapter picks up the theme of suffering, which is very much uh, confronting this group of people in Asia Minor at this time. But he actually moves on to another topic at this point and looks at the appropriate use of spiritual gifts. So we're going to come back to suffering later on, but let's look at what we can learn about gifts before we head back to suffering. That didn't come out right. You know what I mean, (laughs) the topic of suffering. Firstly, the origin of our gifts. There we go. Each of you, he says, should use whatever gift you have received. Note that we have all received gifts of one sort or another. Their origin is from God. When we put our faith in Christ, he has promised to give us a gift or gifts. However, when we look at who we are, our talents, our abilities, our gifts, it's easy to discredit or put aside our own abilities when we see that others can do things so much better than us. How good is Tim on this thing? I can't believe it. But But just because you can't play a musical instrument or just because you can't cook well, it doesn't mean that you aren't gifted or that you shouldn't use your gift however small or however insignificant you feel it may be. Because gifts are not given just to a select few. They're given to every single person in this room. Every single member of the church has a gift. And whether your gifts are big, they're upfront gifts, whether they're small or showy or quiet or not, they all come from the same Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And the purpose of gifts... Oh, dear, there it goes again, Stu. (laughs) The purpose of gifts, Peter writes, is basically to serve others. And when you think about it, uh, yes, that'll be right. How counterintuitive this idea is. That idea that we should use what we have to serve not just not ourselves, but to serve others. Understanding the biblical conception of how we are to use our gifts should smash a huge dent into the world's idea of self-promotion and self-indulgence. Who is the most important person in this world, we're told? Me. Yeah, that's the message we hear repeatedly in the media. But the purpose of our gifts is to serve others. Spiritual gifts 
are given to us to be used to serve others for the building up of the body of Christ. Not only that, is there's that there is a great diversity of gifts. Peter, and Peter mentions just two in this passage. He says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. We're all given different gifts to serve in different capacities. And this is important because... Well, yeah, as I said before, we, we often covet other people's gifts while undermining the gifts God has given to us. But we all have a distinct role to play in the body of Christ. And when people exercise the gifts, use the gifts that they're given within the community of the church, the church can be a wonderful, powerful entity. But we are encouraged to use our gifts it's no um, little cliche that says, use it or lose it. And that's very true with our gifts. Furthermore, we must draw our confidence and strength from the Holy Spirit to truly bless others with our gifts, rather than just relying on our own abilities. When we speak, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit to give us the words to say. When we serve others, we rely on the Holy Spirit to supply us with the strength, the energy, the capacity we need to serve. Peter also says the goal of our gifts is so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We are urged to use our gifts. Why? To honour Jesus in everything we do, everything we say. The term all things, important word, little word, that word all in the Bible. All things determines the scope of how our gifts are to be used and it begs us the question we need to ask ourselves, do I use my gifts so that in everything I do, God is glorified, God is honoured? If you use your gifts so that in everything you are glorified, then you need to sense the urgency of the end times by resolving right now not to be some kind of gluttonous Christian believer who eats their fill and never helps out at the table. I encourage you to change to be a steward who ensures others are receiving what they need. And what better way than to start to look for ways to serve in our church community in a church that works well, works with people using their gifts, is a God-given blessing to us all. So just summarising this little section up to in the first uh, 10 verses, 11 verses. Peter is saying in this section, living for Christ, that in spite of the opposition to their way of living and the temptation to return to their old way, old pagan ways of living, Christian believers need to keep looking to Jesus. Remembering that there are benefits to living God's way and in a godly community of believers. They were to look to the building up of God's people and maturing as believers and not just focusing on how hard life was, how tough things were. There is also the reminder that we live in the end times. 
The day of judgment is coming, make no mistake about it, when all people will have to give an account of their actions before God. Peter then returns to this topic of suffering in verses 12 to 19. And this is real, it was very much in their face. It was a scary time to be a believer. Many people were struggling with this issue. And I imagine many of them were asking the same question we do. How can a good and loving God allow people, and particularly Christian believers, to suffer? And so in this next section, Peter talks about suffering for doing good, for being a believer. And he's not talking about things like suffering which happens because we're human beings living living in a fallen world. You know, our bodies do wear out. We do die. And as we age, it comes with the aches and pains of advancing years. That's normal. He's not talking about suffering that I cause myself by the choices I make. For example, if I get sick through unhealthy uh, lifestyle habits or through careless eating and lack of exercise, hey, that's a choice I've made. And I bring the consequences upon myself. Rather, Peter addresses the issue of suffering for your faith. And he says that there are four things you need to do when you suffer as a Christian. Firstly, realize that suffering is bound to happen. He says in verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, don't be upset by this when it happens, when people put you down or people challenge your faith. He says, don't be frightened or anxious. Don't be caught off guard. Be prepared. Be aware that this thing may happen to you in your life. Be prepared. Now, Jesus was very realistic about this. He said, we need to consider the consequences of our commitment to him. He said, if you're going to follow me, count the cost first. It's not always a bed of roses, being a believer. Jesus said, if you follow me, there will be people who will get upset with you, that don't approve of you, that will criticise you, who don't like what you are doing. John 15, 15, sorry, John 15, verse 20, Jesus says, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. You know, sometimes we forget that we're in a spiritual battle. Once you decide to be on God's side, then you become an enemy of the devil. The Bible says in Ephesians 6.12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Bible calls the devil the accuser of their brethren. You know, Satan would really like to hurt God. He's tried, but he can't. So he does the next best thing. He tries to hurt his children, us, because we are believers in Jesus. You know, if you really want to hurt me, the easiest way to hurt me is to hurt my children. If you hurt my kids, you hurt me. And so Satan tries to get back at God by hurting his children, those who put their faith in Christ. The second point I want to make is that In verse 13 it says, Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Peter says, 
Don't complain. Celebrate. Rejoice. Which when you first read it, it sounds like masochism or some kind of martyr complex, doesn't it? Something ridiculous. But the key word there is the word rejoice. It doesn't say enjoy it when you're put down for Jesus. It says rejoice. And there's a big difference between enjoyment and rejoicing. Enjoyment means getting pleasure out of something. But rejoicing means choosing to have a positive attitude in spite of what is going on around you. See, God doesn't say we have to enjoy persecution. Not saying that at all. He says when that happens, when those times of suffering comes and times of hardship come, rejoice in those times. Keep a positive attitude. It is actually a choice. And then Peter lists a few reasons why we should rejoice. Suffering actually draws us closer to God. Now, as we go through times of suffering, we're able to draw on God's strength and power to sustain us in those times. And it's often through these times that we're, that we're forced to our knees to draw on God's provision. And in doing so, we draw ourselves closer to God. We need to rely on him. And when we go through the fire or the fiery ordeal, we're doing it for Jesus. When we're persecuted for his sake, he is with us. He goes through those times with us. He's right there beside us at times carrying us through. And as we're drawn closer to him through our prayers, through our, our, our need for him in these times, we find ourselves drawing closer to him and growing deeper in our relationship with him. It also means that God can be seen in your life. When you're having a tough time for Jesus' sake, it sometimes means that God can be seen in your life. In verse 14, it says, If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Why can I be happy when people put me down for my faith or they challenge me? Because it just means that somebody has seen something different in my life. And obviously they noted the difference. And I wonder if you've ever been challenged about your faith. And if you've never been challenged about your faith, what does it say about your faith? Jesus said, Anyone who is ashamed of me in this wicked and adulterous generation, of him will I be ashamed before my Father when he comes in glory. God says, If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Jesus was not ashamed to die for you. So don't be ashamed to live for him. Peter says, When you're put down for your faith, refuse to be ashamed. Don't be intimidated by cynics, by critics. Don't run from situations that put your faith on trial. People are watching us all the time. And if you claim to be a Christian believer, unbelievers will throw stuff at you just to see how you react. They want to know if your faith is genuine. Does your walk match your talk? Do you really believe what you say you believe? Is this person a person of integrity, they ask? This is person, a person who really has convictions. Is it real to them? If it's not, people will say, well, hey, they're not serious about it and neither will I be. Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
Now, there are many good Christians who would never think of doing certain wrong things, but they are ashamed to admit that they do the right thing when they're around unbelievers. Peter is saying it's not a matter of not doing bad things. It also means being glad and being honest and open and admitting that you do the right things and not feeling embarrassed about it. Don't be embarrassed for your faith, for your values. We're encouraged to stand firm on the truths of the gospel. I think the problem really is the fear of rejection. We're afraid of what other people will think of us. So what's the answer? The answer to the fear of rejection is twofold. Firstly, realise that you don't need the approval of everybody in order to be happy in life. Whether you approve of me or not has nothing to do with my happiness. And secondly, be more concerned about what God thinks about you than what other people think about you. That's called spiritual maturity, when you think more about what God thinks about you than what other people think about you. Remember, if we share in his suffering, we will share in his glory. There is something at the end of this life that is glorious, marvellous, wonderful. We will spend an eternity in heaven with him. There's something to look forward to, no matter what life serves up to us. And any persecution or suffering we might possibly experience in this life because of our faith is insignificant compared to that lasting reward. Final point is to remain faithful to God. He says, Peter says, then those who suffer according to God's will. Sometimes suffering is exactly God's will for your life. Why? Because God is more interested in our character than in our comfort. You know, there's a certain brand of Christianity out there that says God wants everybody to be healthy, wealthy, and you should always be healed, and you should always have every prayer answered, and you should always have everything you want and never have any problems. And if you do have problems, it means you don't have enough faith. Yeah, there's a spiritual term for that. That term is rubbish. It's rubbish. Obviously, those people have not read 1 Peter 4 where it says, sometimes we suffer according to God's will. That's Christian suffering, suffering that's redemptive. It's for our growth and the blessing for other people. If God answered every prayer we, we ever made, if God gave us everything we ever wanted and took away all our problems, we'd be spoiled brats, wouldn't we? And God isn't interested in raising spoiled brats. He says, remain faithful even when the heat's on. And so I want to finish by asking two questions. Do people notice Jesus in your life? Do the people you have around you all the time know where you stand? The people at work or associations you move in, your relatives, your friends. Have you shared the good news of new life in Jesus with them? You know, if you found, if you discovered the cure for cancer, you wouldn't keep it to yourself. You'd tell people. And we have the greatest, most wonderful news in the world. I mean, you know, the reality is the world is far, often far more ready to hear about the good news of Jesus 
then we are ready to share it. The second question I'd encourage you to think about is this. Have you been ashamed to make a stand, to take a stand for Jesus? There are people all around us who are going to die without Jesus if we don't share the good news of new life with them. And I would suggest that you put your fear of rejection on the shelf and start praying for one family, one person, one person you can invite to church one Sunday. Just say, come with me to church. Take a stand for Jesus. If you can't even do that, how much is your faith worth? And yes, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been embarrassed for Jesus at some point in our lives, probably multiple times. But the good news is, if we confess our sins, Jesus will forgive us. He will forgive us. And that is really good news because we don't have to carry the guilt of being ashamed for him. We confess it, move on, and take a stand for him. And to... I've lost my little card. We have uh, the 316441 cards to help us, to remind us, to pray for people, um, friends, neighbours, a family member, and to pray for them in this way. The cards are up there, take one. Um, it's, it's great to have that in your, your wallet or your purse. Just remind you to pray for these people, only a couple of people. Pray for a year for these people and see what happens. You know, I encourage you to do that. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we, we thank you for blessing us with incredible gifts. We thank you for the gifts of others who bless us in turn. Our Lord, we pray that as we encounter hardships and difficulties in life, that we'll draw strength on you, from you, to walk through these difficult times, to rejoice in them, to keep focused on the goal ahead, to remember that you suffered and died for us. Heavenly Father, help us not to be ashamed for you, that we may live lives which are beacons of light for those around us. And we pray that they will come to know you as their Lord and Saviour as we have done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.